Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 272 of the podcast for January 18th, 2017. My guest today is Steve Thompson, Director of Patient-Driven Supply Network Initiatives for Cardinal Health, a global integrated healthcare services and products company. Steve is also a Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt, dating back to his time spent working in the automotive industry. So in today's episode, we talk about Steve's lessons learned from General Motors and Lear Corporation, and how he's now helping healthcare leaders apply these lessons to improve their supply chain operations. So if you'd like to learn more and see uh, show notes, uh, a PDF summary of some of the key points and quotes from this episode, you can go to leanblog.org slash 272. So again, our guest today is Steve Thompson. Steve, thank you for being a guest today. Thanks, Mark. I, I enjoy your show. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, I think we have uh, a lot to talk about today. Thank you for that. Um, you can start off, you always just like to have guests introduce themselves and their background and and what you're what you're doing in, in your career, but you know along that along that way, and you know, we're going to take a deeper dive into lean. Um, you know, if you can talk about how you first got introduced to lean. Sure. So um, I have responsibility for uh, elements of our patient-driven supply network initiative, which is really aligning all of our uh, platforms, our distribution and flow uh, to demand signals, which. It's funny, right? Here we are uh, in 2016 talking about things that we did in automotive 40 years ago. Uh, I started uh, General Motors uh, as a college intern in 1983 between my first and second year and pretty much grew up in automotive. I left uh, General Motors to go to Delphi Corporation, uh, which is really at that point staying inside of GM, right? Uh, And then went to Lear Corporation in the late 90s and uh, accepted an offer to come to Cardinal Health about 11 years ago. Um, it's been a lot of fun uh, going from automotive, which I, I think, at least as achieved in my mind, um, uh, is very mature in this area, coming into healthcare, which is it's clearly still very new to, uh, to lean thinking. Um, I'm a certified Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt, um, have been certified for, gosh, uh, coming on almost 20 years now. And so in, in the auto industry... Um, well, we'll, dive, you know, we'll take a look back at you know, Lean and GM, these other companies. But so 20 years ago, Lean Six Sigma Blaster Backbelt certification in the auto industry. We, I think people tend to associate the auto industry more with Lean than Six Sigma. Can you talk a little bit about that or at least what you experienced at some of those different companies and how those approaches were combined? Well, it's funny. I was doing Lean before it was called Lean, but I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just really fortunate. So, so much of your career is time and place, right? Uh, happened to be a college intern at a facility that had uh, had inherited a Sloan Fellow, if you will, that had just come back from being uh, in Japan with uh, folks like Jeffrey Liker and Jim Womack, um, who had learned essentially the Toyota production system, came back, started writing books about it. Uh, but there were a number of students who were on that on that uh, on that trip as well, and um, went directly into uh, mostly manuf- automotive manufacturing, and, uh, and and started applying these principles um, that at the time really had didn't have names. We we were making names up for the for what we were doing. Hmm. Um, we were we were we were dangerous because uh, <laughs> we only knew a little bit, but. What we knew it turned out to be really, really powerful, and I think a lot of us did all the right things for the right reasons, and sometimes we did the wrong things for the right reasons, and sometimes we did the right things for the wrong reasons, but a lot of us just got lucky. Um, when I went to Lear Corporation, uh, I, I, they, were, they had a senior uh, executive who had come from Toyo in Japan, was one of the first Occidentals to be uh, in, in Toyota and working in that supply chain, and he... Um, he got to me immediately. Said, I, "Look, I know I know who you worked with. I know where you came from. Uh, I'd like you to be on my team. We're going to do essentially lean, but we're going to incorporate six sigma into it." Uh, Liberation had um, 
got into Six Sigma around uh, 90, 97, 98, 99-ish. Um, a lot of influence from Ford Motor Company uh, to do it. And uh, just like I said, time and place, uh, it, it, the this, this skill set made a lot of sense to me because I loved Lean. Lean had a certain folksiness to it. People could grasp it. Uh, it was clearly counterintuitive when you first started thinking about it, but the more you thought about it, you realized everything you'd learned was sort of backwards. Um, but what Lean wasn't capable of, of doing was understanding how to work with multiple variable, variables simultaneously, which is something that Six Sigma does. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I, over over the course of about 10 years, I, I came to rationalize that they weren't two different things, that they actually really worked well together. Mm -hmm which is one of the reasons why I uh, came to Cardinal Health when they asked, because they were trying to put them together at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with you that they're complementary. You know, I my, you know, I started in the audio industry as well, as listeners know. And, you know, when I was in manufacturing, um, you know, I went through Six Sigma Greenbelt training, didn't get certified. I worked at a manufacturing company that, that used both methods. And, yeah, I think what you described is a, a fair combination. Uh, lean is something everyone can be involved in. Six Sigma methods, uh, you know, I think allow people to tackle certain complex sort of uh, sticky problems. Um, you know, the one thing I, I take issue with and I've talked to people about on this podcast, um, you know, sometimes in disagreement is, you know, when, when people say, I think the false construct is, you know, well, lean is all about efficiency and Six Sigma is the way you improve quality. I, I you know, I sort of reject that way of framing the two together. Um, curious your your thoughts on that or stories you have about how lean also helps improve quality. Well, so if you if you visualize most automotive manufacturing and all the sub-processes and all the feeding processes are typically linear processes. Mm -hmm. And um, you have a number of different inputs that go into creating an output, which is the basic premise of Six Sigma. Understand the inputs and control them, you can predict the outputs. One of the tenets of Six Sigma is having controlled data and, and statistical data that is working within um, an acceptable bound so that you know that your information is actually, is actually valid. And what we learned early on is that we did lean first to get processes under control before we could even think of applying Six Sigma tools uh, to make improvement. Right. I think of this as more, I, I like, what I like about the complement between these two skill sets, and you're right, I think once upon a time, um, the Six Sigma piece was very elitist, it was uh, highly educated statisticians in a closed room that had no idea what the process was, and, uh, and I think we're past those days now that we understand that I can use the Six Sigma skills to, um, to measure and control improvements I've made in a process using lean. Mm -hmm. We learned early on that we applied the basic lean principles. And to me, lean is super, people ask me all the time, how do you describe what you do? What's, what's lean really? And if I had to, if I had to write it on, on, uh, on the, the line where I sign my check, I would simply say, um, you, you match the inputs to the outputs. Mm -hmm. And if you can, and, and all the things that you need to do to make that happen are the lean skills. Once that's in place, uh, you can control it and measure whether or not you're still in control using the Six Sigma skills. Yeah, I think that's a fair way of combining the two. And you know, I've heard a lot of hospitals say that, you know, at one point they, you know, they they gotten exposed to Six Sigma first, and then later they got exposed to Lean. And you know, I've heard a reflection of people saying, like you were saying there, you know, in in hindsight, they they wish they had applied Lean first to create stability get things under control, then apply Six Sigma on top of that. I, I, I think that's uh, a fair approach and a good way of combining things. That's my And I think the other thing that happens with Lean is, is Lean teaches an organization um, how, to, uh, how to be friendly toward change. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so once you get to that point, um, you can – the problem with Six Sigma typically is – uh, is the reaction or the perception that it just takes too long. Um, the reason it takes too long is because what you're doing is getting to the more minuscule elements. Uh, I, I think one of my favorite ways of, of, of looking at the two is from a Six Sigma standpoint, Six Sigma is an inch wide and a mile deep, 
whereas sometimes lean can be an inch deep but a mile wide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's let's talk about some of the other lessons from the auto industry, and and maybe also talk about you know how you're helping, how you've been helping healthcare organizations um, apply some of these methods and and tactics in, into healthcare. Um, you know, the, a, a, you know, probably first topic I'm sure near and dear to your heart: materials management, supply chains, supply networks. Um, what what were some of the key lessons? Uh, in insights that you got working in the auto industry, and and how do you see that translating into healthcare these days? Well, in automotive, I, I think, and I may be not exactly right with the numbers here, but we always said eighty five percent of the total cost was material, and so, uh, and and this is something we learned clearly from pain where there are really no natural resources so they have to bring everything in which means everything is crazy expensive which is why they treat every element of material with that most respect all the way down to a nut screw and bolt um, if you if you embrace the concept that everything is, ex- is expensive and dear then um, then you're going to focus on you're going to have a laser focus on reducing the waste in your supply chain in healthcare uh, 55 or 60 percent of the total expense is labor. Mm-hmm. So materials holds a smaller, uh, a smaller focus, if you will. But when you think of all the things that have happened in healthcare over the last decade or two, um, with the reduction in staff and reading about nurses being laid off at hospitals, and then you look at the same time at the at the uh, the the, uh, the change in the demographics of our population. You started. Everyone's come to the conclusion, I believe, that we, we don't have an appetite to reduce any more nurses from the from the system. And once you can't reduce cost from your labor pool, you've got to go to the next biggest bucket, which is stuff. It's material. And so, whereas automotive was thinking this way, at least in North America, in the late '80s, going into the '90s, especially with the recession, healthcare is now under tremendous cost pressure and reimbursement pressure and is looking at any, everywhere it possibly can to save. And uh, it's just been in the last several years that uh, supply chains and materials management have come under that microscope, which is great for people like me. <laughs> right. Um, so, we'll, and we'll touch later on, uh, you know, some, some other examples and, you know, sort of, you know, case studies of um, success stories that we're seeing in healthcare today. But you know, let's kind of continue reflecting on you know, lessons from the auto industry, what translates uh, in, into healthcare. Um, what, what, what did you learn about leadership? You've, you've already brought up the idea of, of change, and I like the way you said that, being friendly, helping people be friendly toward change instead of um, change being threatening uh, to people. What mm-hmm. were some of the leadership lessons that you learned and help help others learn now in healthcare. You know, it's interesting. I had heard the expression multiple times and it wasn't really until it came to healthcare that I started to see it. It's, it's the idea of the layer of clay. And in any any large structure, um, the folks um, in the front lines tend to really get this quickly. It makes sense to them. One of the things I love about Lean is it's so inclusive. Um, the folks at the top of the house who are ultimately responsible for decision-making and strategy, they get it, but at a different level. They tend to be looking at it financially and looking for a greater performance. They have a real problem to fix. Uh, as you get deeper into the organization top-down, you run into the, the group of folks that are really change-not-friendly, For if we're going to use change-friendly as a, as a concept, mm-hmm. and, and for a host of reasons. One, um, I got to this level... Uh, because I've always done this, and now I'm being asked to do something different, and it's scary. Um, or this idea of um, of of, uh, of transferring uh, decision making lower into the organization, which makes perfect sense for an organization, doesn't necessarily make sense for some classically trained leaders. And so, so it's a scary thing for a lot of leadership. Um, we call it the layer of clay, or at least I've heard it called that many times. And uh, because it's the group that really doesn't want to change. Um, leaders need to learn how to lead differently in a lean environment. Right. It's, it's just this, this, this whole idea of, hey, I'm all about change, you know, so go out there, change. Do all the change you want, but I'm not doing anything differently. And so 
um, it, it's the uh, 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 the definition of insanity, right? The yeah. I'm going to uh, uh, do the same thing I've always done and expect to get a different outcome. Although one thing I have learned in healthcare is I'm starting to think that the definition of insanity in this industry is the opposite. It's it's doing different things and expecting the same outcome. <laughs> And uh, there's, I mean, we talk about the way things have always been. There's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of that in, in healthcare. People have, have old habits. They were successful because of those habits. Um, you know, I think one of those habits is jumping in, giving people answers, being the hero. And, you know, when we talk about leading differently, um, you know, th this idea of empowering employees can, I think, not not just be threatening to leaders, but it creates a sense of loss of, well, if I'm letting my employees solve problems, now I don't get to do that. And I really enjoyed doing that. Um, do, you, do you have thoughts on that transition, that, that way of leading differently or learning how to do so? You, you described half of my career. <laughs> I, I've always enjoyed being the person who got to be able to jump in and fix something, I got a call at two o'clock in the morning, next thing I'm on a plane to Mexico City and we're solving problems and that was exciting, but it was crazy expensive. And the reason why we were doing that is because we hadn't designed processes or products correctly in the first place. So real leadership is, is, is not being the person who goes in and fixes it. it, real leadership is being the person that creates an environment that stops it from happening in the first place. I would much rather have, and, 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 this goes, and this is a perfect uh, analogy to healthcare. I would much rather have the population seeing uh, primary care physicians and having problems dealt with early, mm -hmm. as opposed to people showing up with eight hundred thousand dollar problems when they're acute at a at an at the most expensive location of care, which is the hospital. Yeah. And so, real leadership and hospital leaders understand this. You you think of what's happened in the last eight years since the advent of the Affordable Care Act is we've seen a lot of consolidation. So a bunch of individual hospitals and medical centers and surgery centers and doctor's offices have now come together to form systems. And those systems are treating differently than they have historically. And they're treating by actually creating a, a value stream, if you will, that paths through from the primary care physician all the way through diagnostics, through treatment, through post-procedure uh, through, through post, uh, care, all the way back to the home, and real leadership is is um, is finding a way to to make those uh, those pathways, if you will, uh, flow smoothly to to take as much cost away from uh, from doing all the unnecessary things because the system is broken or the person is broken to uh, to moving it up forward so you, you can get you get to be able to fix something when it's treatable you, yeah. you remember back in the days when we talked about design for six sigma um, that was a really neat idea it was really about this idea of design for manufacturability and being able to understand process variation and failure steps um, that would happen as you designed a process or a product to make sure that those things didn't happen mm -hmm. It's easy to go back and fix something after the fact. It's almost like a guarantee. I got a guaranteed job as long as we have a new product cycle every two years. I'm going to be working. I'm going to fix something else. Wouldn't it be interesting if I could fix it up front? Well, and those are great points. And you know, when you bring up the idea of design for manufacturability, when you know you go back to the studies of the machine that changed the world, and you know the the, the Japanese auto plants were were had such higher productivity compared to the American plants and the European plants. You know, we, we, we were, the Americans were, were better than the European plants. No offense to my European listeners. That's the data. But um, a lot of, you know, people would sometimes look at that data and blame the American workers for the lack of productivity or say, oh, well, you know, they're lazy. They don't work as hard as the, the Japanese workers. But a lot of it came down to the Japanese cars being designed in a way uh, that made them easier to build. You know, th this this productivity was designed in or not designed in during engineering cycles. And I, I see parallels. You know, I'm curious your thoughts on, on any of this then, Steve. I see parallels in healthcare where some hospitals are designed and being built these days uh, in a way that um, leads to productivity materials and supply chain systems can be designed in a way that leads to flow or productivity um, or or not. So I'm curious, what, what are your 
thoughts and reflections on that that parallel? Well, a whole bunch of stuff came in my head as you were talking. Um, first of all, I think it was unfair in some ways to compare the Japanese workers to the North American European workers because our workers were having to do so much extra stuff to right. accomplish simple tasks because we didn't have the delivery methods and we hadn't thought through the, the seven wastes that, the, that Toyota had. And so Toyota's workers were able to apply more time doing uh, value-added direct labor versus our folks who were doing a lot mm -hmm. of extra handling, a lot of extra motion. Uh, I grew up in union big three environment and I'll tell you those those folks worked hard mm -hmm. and had tremendous pride in what they did yes I agree um, yeah I don't I don't think it was ever about laziness and you hear your odd story about about the lazy auto worker doing this or doing that but I'll tell you I've every story I've ever walked to I saw the lazy employee so it's it's not the people most people <laughs> want to do the right thing every day and most people take pride in what they do yeah um, Refresh me again, Mark, the second part of your question, because that was my emotional reaction. Yeah, well, so, yeah, and I agree with you, um, you know, not, not blaming the workers for being put in a situation where they had to build cars that were uh, too complex, hard to build. I, mean, I, I would, before coming back to the original question, I see a parallel in healthcare. Nurses get pulled away from the bedside uh, by problems with supply chain and materials and technology and, and other issues. But I, I think the other part of my question was about, you know, if, if cars could be designed for productivity or lack of productivity, um, you know, these supply right. chains. How, why and, can't we design? Yeah. Yeah. So, so do, do you see this right. built in or not? Are you trying to help yeah, people we, with this? We've done these studies. Um, nurses spend upwards of 25% of their time doing inventory management and materials management work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's crazy. And yeah. and your initial reaction is that that seems ridiculous. But if you just visualize what a nurse does, a nurse will go into um, into a, a, a material closet looking for a component. Oftentimes, that component is in a uh, a closed cabinet kind of delivery method that's supposed to be an inventory tracking system. And so that nurse will will go to a go to a computer, uh, sign in or swipe in. Uh, will will bring up a component they're looking for. It'll take them a moment to find it. They'll identify it. A cabinet will open. They'll have to go over to that door, open that cabinet, take take the component out, and then press a button that basically is a take button. Close it so it locks. Go back over. Uh, identify that they've completed that task, and then assign it to a patient for charge or for for uh, for data capture for re record retention and then close out of the system, and that takes anywhere from 45 to 75 seconds. So for the sake of argument, let's call that a 60-second activity. If they do that 120 times a shift, yeah. that's two hours. So, and without even being an industrial engineer, I just figured out that there's <laughs> two hours of waste in the nurse's day. It's the most expensive non-physician uh, non, non labor in a hospital. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't make sense for that person to be doing it. it Interesting question you had said as part of your, because it flooded back to me, your, your original question relative to um, design, designing hospitals for better delivery. I don't think we're there yet. No, uh, I think we're getting there. Yeah. Yeah, architectural firms are typically compensated for delivering as much um, uh, revenue generating floor space as possible in, an, in, a, in a hospital. And they typically don't, have not historically thought through, huh, we've got to have stuff as well, and stuff costs money, and stuff sitting around is, 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 is expense. We learned that in lean and automotive, that mm -hmm. finished goods um, shouldn't be considered capital. They shouldn't be right. considered as a credit. We should be, they, they're an expense until they're sold. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of hospitals have um, very poor delivery methods. Now, we have, I, I've been very fortunate that a couple of hospitals over the last couple of years have reached out to us and asked for, them, asked for us to help take a look at their, at their plans, their designs as they're building new wings and new buildings. And they're starting to think this way, which is wonderful. How do I, get, how do I create an easy flow of goods so I don't have to task my most expensive, most important labor with, um, with inventory management material and materials management roles? Right. And that's a big aha. 
Yeah, and, and you know, and, and we want to let nurses be nurses. I, I had I mean, there was one nurse I was talking with once uh, who who had said something really funny. She said she kind of paused, and you know, I don't remember a class in nursing school called searching for supplies <laughs> because they're not. <laughs> That's not what they're there to do, and um, you know I think you know things are changing. Um, you know there there are architects, and I've, I've talked to um, you know people on this podcast who are working together with hospitals in a different way. They um, are, are are you know trying to they're 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 working together and with the construction companies to develop and deliver more functional spaces. Um, not just bigger and staff are guilty of saying, oh, we want the same space, but bigger. And that creates other types of waste when I've seen that um, executed on. Um, but, you know, what I've seen, I think more likely is just a lack of awareness of, you know, I've seen people open up brand new clinics and sure enough, wow, there was not enough space designed in for uh, for the, the materials that they needed. But, you know, maybe you can comment on this. You know, when people ask, well, you know, how much space do we need for inventory? Uh, that leads to a series of questions instead of an answer. Like, well, what what's how often are things being delivered? You know, you need to design not just the space, but the supply chain and, and materials, movement processes. What, what, what are some of the things you see um, kind of you know, moving in a good direction in healthcare? So you bring up a great point. Biggest difference between manufacturing, be it healthcare, be it uh, automotive or aerospace or consumer goods, and the delivery of healthcare is um, the bill of materials. So in automotive, for example, we know exactly what we need to create whatever our product is that we're making. How much metal? How much plastic? How much paint? How much adhesive? How much labor? How much electricity? Yeah, it's very predictable. Um, we, yeah. Right. We don't have that in healthcare. We have some general guidelines around what we think we use for procedures, but there's two things at play. There's this idea, which is very prevalent, that, hey, um, this isn't car making. These are patients and they're people, and everyone's different. And to that end, yeah, that's true. Everyone's a little different. But at the same time, all the processes that happen around the patient should not should not be different. I shouldn't be doing admitting different eight hundred times when I admit eight hundred patients. I should I should be doing um, things the same way to create a, a a predictable outcome. But because we don't have a procedural bill of materials, it's not so easy to simply say, "Hey, I'm expecting to do uh, twenty thousand cardiovascular procedures in this system over the next." You know, X amount of time, and therefore that's going to extrapolate out to um, all the components that I need to use. Because the reality is, we don't have consistent practice from from uh, uh, caregiver to caregiver either. It, it's not unusual to have four different surgeons doing essentially the same DRG, or if you will, the same um, procedure, kind of four different ways. And a lot of it is because of how they learned. Um, it, it, it's kind of a good thing and a bad thing in my mind. I'm not a medical professional, so so I, I, I always enjoy having this conversation because I learn so much from it, but um, it medical practice is exactly what it sounds like. We continue to learn based on doing things over and over again what we think is getting the best outcome. And so we're reticent to change. As we make changes to try to get to that better outcome, we, we believe that if we do this, this, and this, that we can expect that. And so when someone like you or I shows up and say, hey, let's make a change, um, people are automatically not necessarily excited to help us or, or to be part of that change. And so um, a lot of what we've been doing is, quite, is, is, at least from my perspective, is staying a little bit away from the actual delivery of care and focusing on the delivery of the components and the things that allow or enable those caregivers to provide that care. Um, if um, if someone says, hey, I'm building a brand new clinic and we're going to be doing X number of procedures, doing this, this, and that, then um, the only real safe way to do it is to think of, is to extrapolate based on what they've done historically, and uh, and use that as a starting point. Yeah. The other reality is, um, and you brought this up, and you're right on. There's an emotional attachment to where we put stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's also this belief that if I have more of it, I'll never run out. Mm. <laughs> the biggest fear in healthcare is that we're going to run out of something that we need. 
and that a patient is going to be put into a traumatic position because they didn't have something that they need for, for uh, to be better. Right. And that's emotional. And so um, as we begin to make, and from my perspective, I like using things like data. Right. Which is crazy, right? <laughs> I, want to, I, want to, I want to use data and facts. I try to stay away from the emotion, emotional uh, approach because you may only need six of these a month with a certain standard deviation. So maybe sometimes you use three and sometimes you use nine. And I'm going to be really careful and I'm going to give you a space for 12. Right. But you used to have a space for 30 of them. Mm-hmm. And now when I put in a space for 12, everyone panics because it used to be 30, even though we've never used 30. Right. Or worse, maybe once upon a time we did once. And therefore, we need to have all that stuff all the time. One of the issues that we have in this industry is that a lot, if not most, of the, of the things that we buy um, have expiration dates. So I, I liken it to running, uh, running the dairy department at a grocery <laughs> store. I, I have to find that balance between having, um, having enough, that I don't dis- enough on hand that I don't uh, dissatisfy my customer and yet not having so much on hand that I have to throw a lot of it away. Yeah. And today, we throw a lot of it away. Yeah, I mean, you know, inventory, different inventory planning models are you know, always sort of looking at trade-offs. There's the, uh, the cost of inventory, which includes stuff expiring, uh, the cost of, of the space, the cost of the handling, weighed against the cost of stocking out. And you know, if you look at automotive, you know, assembly line downtime can be incredibly expensive if uh, you know if you're selling every car or truck that you're building, um, but you you know at the same time you, know, you, you can't have you know uh, near infinite inventory levels and and you know in, in healthcare uh, the cost of downtime like you said could be could be a matter of of life and death, um, but it sounds like you know maybe you can talk a little bit more about using models, using data, using analytics in a way. Um, you know that that helps people, you know, better better navigate those trade offs. Do, do you have another you know kind of case example or story that that maybe illustrates how do you find that 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 sweet spot where you're you're protected without you know without overdoing it? I mean, you, you, I guess you already you know you told a story that sort of alludes to that, but can you think of other case examples? Oh, yeah, uh, no shortage of stories. <laughs> so, um, you remember back when we used to do plan for every part. Mm-hmm. as part of design layout and lean. It, it is exactly the same philosophy in healthcare. I've got to do a plan for every part. And so what I'm going to have to do is understand my demand history at a component level. And that's my starting point. I bought 365 of them last year. So at its simplest, I use an average of one a day. But we know averages are lies. And so all we need to do is determine the size of the lie. I need to have some mechanism that tells me what my demand actually looked like. I might have used all 365 in a month. So I need to have uh, enough visibility to my utilization to be able to plan effectively. At the same time, something we learned years ago, Jay Forrester uh, at MIT uh, first started talking about this demand amplification concept and how as we move through through the supply chain from, from point to point um, and amplifies. And so the other thing that we learned because of that is from Six Sigma that says, hey, when you put multiple variables together, you actually create new variables. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, if, if, uh, if I was the CEO of a tire company and we wanted to develop a brand new high performance all season radial tire, and I broke my design team into four groups. Uh, someone, one group was going to focus on um, uh, best in class for cold, one for best in class for hot, one for wet, one for dry. And we put all those together to create the best tire we could and put those tires on my car. And tonight I'm driving home, and I'm in Columbus, Ohio. It is snowing today. And um, on my drive home, um, it's both cold and wet at the same time and uh, I lose traction and crash my car, it, it, I, I forgot to remember that these variables, um, when, when put together, create new variables. Ice was formed by my cold and my wet. 
So it's, it's kind of a similar thing in, in healthcare, right? So think about this. Let's say we have a hospital in know, Boca Raton, Florida, for example. Um, and we look at that hospital in, in July, and it, it maybe has a median patient age of 55, and, uh, and a census, census is the, um, is the population of the hospital of, of, of 80%. And those patients are presenting with, with uh, the disease states that 55-year-olds in Florida do. And suddenly we go back and we look at that hospital again in November, and it's an entirely different story. We, uh, we now have a, uh, a patient census over 100%. Um, we have uh, a median patient age of 75 years or greater presenting with entirely different disease states than those did uh, in July at a younger, at a younger age. Um, and then on top of that, every November the, the flu hits. And so what we're, what we're asking our folks to do is to be able to manage all that variation at the same time, and they really don't have the tools and mechanisms to do that because they're kind of guessing. And this, again, goes back to the lack of a bill of materials, mm. the fact that we don't know exactly what we're using all the time. And so um, if we can apply the concept of plan for every part, what we're going to do is take a historical view of demand and say, okay, I used, um, I, I used this many of, of a certain component. And hopefully, I can get to a point where I could say I used it in these time, uh, these time buckets. That should inform me of what demand actually looks like. And on top, so then, so from there, we're going to build some safety in. We'll build a safety stock in. Um, we need to take a look at what uh, what lead time looks like for replenishment. We need to understand um, what the cost is at the each level versus buying it in bulk. And there's this idea that I want to buy a lot of it and save some money. Um, and the reality is that I buy a lot of it, now I've got to put it someplace, and some of it's going to go bad, and some of it I may never use. Um, so we've got to be able to balance that idea against it. But we also have to understand um, what, uh, what the practice looks like. And um, we, we, we don't treat the same things in July as we treat in February. Mm -hmm. I don't see a lot of skiing accidents in July, and I don't see a lot of baseball accidents in February. So that has to be brought into our thinking as well. Right. And we end up having to build really elaborate models, but we've done this. We've done this with a number of customers we've, we, where they've come to us and said, hey, we've got a problem. Um, I've got 32,000-odd components that need to be put into this, this healthcare delivery network, and i got no place to put it. And it... it and, and, and it's based on the fact that, hey, we've always done it this way. We've always had this much space, and suddenly we're moving into a new space, and we don't have, um, we don't have enough uh, cube for what we need to put in. First thing we always look at, from my perspective, is what do you, okay, what do you actually need? Mm -hmm. And then what do you need today? Um, what do you need um, at a different today? Because what if today is not uh, this time of year? What if it's a different time of year? And what are the what are the major drivers of of uh, variation, and that should go into our model as well. A lot of folks do this with a simple spreadsheet. We actually have more uh, at Cardinal Health. We actually have more 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 uh, uh, more sensitive, uh, stronger analytic way of doing it. We we we've been this is something we've been doing for years. Um, we have uh, we have a company. Uh, that we acquired several years ago, called several years ago rather, called uh, Wavemark, and Wavemark was very, very good at understanding demand at the point of use. Um, and we've we've been able to uh, to adopt a lot of the thinking that goes into um, point of use for expensive componentry, and flow that back into our thinking for, therefore, how do we replenish into the network? How do we replenish from the point of manufacture into the point of distribution, all the way to the point of of care, and um, once we're solid with what that delivery network looks like, how strong we are and our capabilities, that tells us uh, how much risk we can or cannot take when we do uh, forward location stopping to say, okay, you used to have 30 here, you only need four, um, but because of these different vari vari variations and elements, we're going to put nine here, mm. um, but we have the ability to replenish these things next day or 
that afternoon or that that same week, etc. Yeah. But you've got to do it at a plan for every part level, and uh, a lot of folks struggle with this, right? A a a, uh, a three hundred bed hospital has anywhere from fifteen to twenty thousand individual stocking locations, mm. and each one of these needs to be looked at to understand how to do it correctly. Yeah, well, it's it's great complexity and. You know, like you're saying, you know, data uh, is, is, is important. Data can surprise people. Um, I think of, you know, it's not an exact parallel, but, you know, people in emergency departments uh, will, will often say, well, you know, we, we can't predict how many people are going to come into the emergency department every day and every hour. I'm like, well, you don't know who is coming in and you don't know, you know, exactly for what. But when you look at the data, it's actually it's predictable within a range. And and, and I think there are parallels to materials management. You don't know exactly, uh, but there's enough of a, a predictor, enough of a range that's, uh, you know, that's that's close enough for planning purposes, better than uh, ignoring data altogether, at least is, is what I've found. It's funny, you know, I've had that exact conversation where someone said, I have no idea who's gonna walk through those front doors. And I always come back with, do you, do you staff Tuesday afternoon the same way you do at two o'clock in the morning on a Saturday when the bars close, right? And they say, well, no. <laughs> so then you do have some idea. Yeah. So there, so, so just, you, you gotta start realizing that you have historical data. And you have a, when you take that data and you apply a standard deviation from a Six Sigma standpoint, you apply some measure of variation to understand um, what might happen realistically, then you have a pretty good idea what's gonna happen. Yeah. So as we uh, start to wrap up, Steve, um, you know, we've, we've mm-hmm. Well, it, it, you know, if you had the opportunity to talk to, you know, a healthcare executive, you know, we've talked about a lot of details here and we roll up our sleeves and get in all these great details, but step back and, you know, if, how would you make the strategic case to a, a healthcare executive, you know, here in, in 2017 about the importance of the supply chain? It, it, it's not, you know, that, you know, it's not just this this boring Monday thing, mundane thing, but it, it, it can be really strategic to a health system. How, how do you make that case? Well, in fairness, this is not the sexy part of healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is, when a chief financial officer looks at their balance sheet, um, stuff, if you will, materials management represents somewhere around 30, 35% of the total expense. So it is the logical place to go. And, and given the fact that we can't, we should not be impacting uh, labor, nurses, um, we've, got to find, we've got to find a way of, of bringing down the cost. And, and then just, we just look at the, there have been a lot of studies done, GHX did a great study where they, where they uh, identified that it's about $5 billion with a B in supply chain waste in healthcare in North America, just in the supply chain for devices and implantables. Mm. So that in and of itself, uh, I, and I often tell folks, hey, imagine what we could do with that $5 billion, so let's go get it. Because yeah. a lot of it is really not that difficult to go get. It's, it's, it's changing the, uh, the methods that we've always used uh, in how we work and, 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 uh, and how we approach. I. I meet very few executives in healthcare today that don't understand the power of lean. So that's been wonderful. And we've had a number of folks who have been on the cutting edge of this and have been fighting the good fight to, to bring lean into healthcare um, despite a tremendous amount of early resistance. Um, if for no other reason than to engage your employees at the front line if you, if you want to know where the waste in a process is, you don't ask the supervisor. <laughs> you don't ask the manager. You ask the folks that do the work. They know where it is. So if you can engage the hearts and minds of those folks who are tasked with doing the daily chores, um, they, they are the folks who are going to be able to help you uh, to stop making the mistakes and, 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 and get to a correction. Yeah. And they can identify... Uh, someone told me, I heard the expression recently, someone said, oh yeah, no, we need to go talk to those folks. They know where the bodies are buried. <laughs> so, uh, but they do. Those are the folks, those are the folks that know it. They, they, know, um, they know where the extra hoard of supplies is located. 
they do. And the problem with the hoarder supplies is we put them there to protect ourselves, and we left them there, and they've all expired. Mm -hmm. So now we run the risk of using them on a patient, and that is incredibly dangerous. Yeah. And we have an opportunity to step back and ask, you know, I've never blamed people for hoarding stuff to ask why is uh, why, why are they hoarding it? And when we improve the supply chain, they don't need to hoard uh, and, and hold stuff back because we, we can build trust and confidence in a uh, improved supply chain. I think that's great to see that happening. Well, yeah, I'll tell you, that's what we've been working on here for, for, for the last while. We call it the patient driven supply network. And it's really, it comes from the concept of the consumer-driven supply network. How do you start with patient back? And if you think about uh, consumer goods, when, when this really started what, 10 or 15 years ago, this idea of understanding when something is used at the point by a consumer at the point of consumption and using that as a demand signal to ensure that every time that that customer goes to the store that that item they want to purchase is there. And how do we tie that supply chain back to, to our um, SNOP to make sure that we're manufacturing based on what demand looks like, looks like and not what convenience looks like from a manufacturing standpoint, we're applying the same concept into uh, the healthcare supply chain. What, I, I, it, it's as good as we are at the movement of stuff, and we're pretty good at it. Mm -hmm. um, the trick to doing this well is understanding data and, and seeing demand as it happens. And one of the things we've come to realize is in a supply chain, uh, and, and maybe sometimes I think how you approach a problem is really how you define the problem, the language matters. Um, by calling something a chain, we automatically see it in a, as a linear. And so information flows in that same linear process. So a hospital uses things up to a point where they hit a reorder point, and then they process a purchase order, and that goes to someone, probably a distributor or a wholesaler, and uh, they replenish it, and they do the same thing with, until they get to a point where they need to reorder it, and they get it from an importer or a sterilizer or a manufacturer. And it can be weeks and weeks um, between when something was used and when the manufacturer uh, ultimately sees there was any kind of a change in demand. Something we did in automotive is we were in a network, meaning when a car was built, we all saw it at exactly the same time. And this went down through the tiering system. And um, it allowed everyone to be able to react simultaneously to understand, hey, there's been a change in demand, or to be able to even just to understand that there hasn't been a change in demand, and therefore we can continue to manufacture based on our plan. If we were to have a, the ability um, for the extended supply chain to see demand happen simultaneously, just like UPC codes in the supermarket, then we would be changing our supply chain to a supply network. And a network is much more powerful than a chain. Anecdotally, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. I think the weak, the weak link in the chain is uh, the flow of information. And so we have been focusing, this, and it's been a lot of fun, Mark. We've been focusing on this for um, coming up on, uh, on a year now, which is how do we flip our entire model to be able to react very quickly to actual demand. Right. Forget forecasting, right? I remember uh, a mentor of mine once called uh, forecasting the F word. I kind of <laughs> took that on as my own. And so um, forget forecasting. Why wouldn't we want to just understand what demand actually looks like and have a system which is so nimble that we are able to flow? This is something we learned in automotive, right? that when I had a lot of inventory on hand and I ran out of something, I was in trouble. Right. But when I had very little inventory on hand, I never got in trouble because it was always moving and I could reach out and get it. And it's exactly the same concept um, in moving to a network in healthcare. If I have everything moving in a rapid replenishment model, then I have the ability to, to have things go from point A to point B that are always moving um, and it may cost me a little more in transportation, but it's going to save me a lot in inventory, and I'm going to, and I'm going to, and it's going to save me a lot in obsolete, and it's going to save me a lot in, ex, in expired product, and more importantly, I'm going to satisfy my customer every time they need something because it's always going to be there. Well, and and that's that's the goal, and and that's what we're working towards. So, Steve, you know, uh, thank you for talking with us. Thank you for 
the work that you've been doing in, in, in healthcare and, and your colleagues at, uh, at Cardinal Health. Uh, as we wrap up here, how can people uh, reach out if they would like to you know, follow up with you about the discussion? I'm, I'm sure there's uh, places people can read more about the work, including the patient-driven supply network online. Where, where would you recommend people go? Um, they can send me an, an email directly. Uh, it's super easy, steve.thompson, with a P, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, at cardinalhealth.com. And uh, we have, or they can go to our website, cardinalhealth.com, or just, yeah, cardinal, cardinal.com, cardinalhealth.com. Um, either one will get you there. And uh, look, uh, look for um, our multiple inventory management offers. Uh, it's a big, big organization that's divided into a pharmaceutical side, and a med surge side. So there are um, similar solutions that, um, because of regulatory concerns, et cetera, actually approach things differently. But um, uh, if, if you can imagine uh, the solution, uh, we, we're probably working on it. And, uh, and we'd love to show it to you. And, and you're going to be talking, um, you, you, you talk at conferences. What, what do you have coming up where people may be crossing paths with you, seeing you speak and present? Oh, I'm going to be uh, speaking um, at Logimed in Austin, Texas, March 7th through the 9th, um, and it'll be on some of these topics we talked about today uh, around uh, uh, managing demand and demand variability and how do you align uh, your processes and products to, to, that, uh, to that signal. Um, and, it's, uh, and my approach is always signal back, right? It's, it's, I went from car back now to patient bedside back. Uh, it looks and feels different. The reality is it's, it's very, very similar. The, the, uh, the approach is always similar. Uh, the skills are very similar. Um, I think the end result is uh, just much more rewarding for me. Uh, I, I, I love cars. Uh, I, I love being in that industry. Uh, I've come to realize that healthcare is really important and uh, very fulfilling. So. Uh, even though it's very, very similar, I think it's really, it, it kind of tickles me differently. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a unique industry. It's a special industry. And, and I certainly appreciate that sentiment that it's, uh, it's a great place to be helping, uh, help, helping others improve, contributing to, uh, to this great industry. So um, our, our guest again today has been Steve Thompson from uh, Cardinal Health. Uh, great, great talking to you today. Thanks uh, so much for being a guest. I always enjoy talking with you, Mark, anytime. Thanks. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.